Section 18, Part 3, Chapter 1 of The Uttermost Star. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Olivia. The Uttermost Star and Other Gleams of Fancy by Frank W. Borum. Slip. The deck of an ocean liner in a tropical sea is the laziest place on the planet. Nobody dreams of promenading. During the intervals between meals, the deck chairs are all occupied, and each chair is carefully adjusted to such an angle that the occupant is practically reduced to horizontality. Fancy work reposes peacefully on the laps of the ladies, and a few brave spirits keep up a pretense at reading. But the book, however exciting, fails to grip, and every now and again the hand collapses beneath its burden, whilst the eyelids involuntarily close. For the rest, we sprawl and doze and dream, and await the sounding of the next gong. Henneker and I had just come up from afternoon tea. We sat down side by side, and abandoned ourselves to the prevailing lethargy. I must have fallen asleep, for when I opened my eyes, the chair that Henneker had occupied was empty, and the chief engineer was approaching. He took the vacant seat, and after a few preliminary inquiries and observations, began to talk about things in his own department. He was disappointed, it seemed, with the previous day's run. We had done 330 knots. He thought it should have been 340. Well, I said, and how do you account for it? Oh, he replied, it can only be owing to slip. I had to confess that the expression conveyed nothing to my mind, and he considerately proceeded to dispel my ignorance. Oh, well, you see, he explained, all that we can do down in the engine room is to see that a maximum of power is generated by the furnaces and communicated by the engines to the shaft. But a certain waste of energy takes place between the propeller and the water. It may be that a heavy sea lifts the screw into the air occasionally, or it may be that the pitching of the vessel keeps the screw too much in the light water near the surface instead of in the heavier water deeper down. Or it may be that, for some other reason, the water does not offer the necessary resistance to the blades of the propeller. That waste of energy, however it occurs, we call slip. Yesterday, if the slip had been normal, we ought to have done 340 knots. As it is, we only did 330. The slip must have been more serious than we thought. Almost immediately he was called away. But as I sat there on the deck, with the empty chair at my side, I found that the information with which the chief engineer had supplied me provided food for a good deal of reflection. One has not to go to an ocean liner in mid-Atlantic in order to discover cases of slip. Accidents will happen in the best regulated families. Where there is a generation of energy, there is a greater or smaller escape of energy. Wherever there is power, there is slip. Indeed, in thinking it over since, I am convinced that my friend the chief engineer is less troubled by slip than most of us. His work is liable to slip at but one point, the point at which the propeller strikes the water, whilst the work of most of us is subject to slip at quite a number of points. Take the artist, for example. He comes most readily to mind, because I have just left him. I was strolling along the beach this afternoon, enjoying the expanse of blue water to my right, the stretch of yellow sand before me, and the riot of green forestry extending to the horizon on my left. I clambered over a pile of rocks round which the waves were playing, and under their shadow 
came suddenly upon a painter busy at his easel he was facing a massive bluff of red sandstone surmounted by a tangle of tea-tree and scrub i entered into conversation with him and was soon confirmed in my impression that in his case slip may occur not at one point but at several to begin with however carefully he may scrutinize the great cliff in front of him something of its ruggedness and beauty is sure to escape him a greater artist would discover some gleam of light or shade that he fails to notice and with the greater artist it is only a matter of degree he would observe more but he would still miss something then in the second place there is a certain amount of slip in expression my friend the artist confessed that he could never convey to his canvas all the beauty that he did see the picture in his soul is always a little lovelier than the work upon the easel and then later on there is a certain amount of slip in the eye of the admirer of the picture for the picture is not for the painter it is for the public and the most appreciative observer never sees in the picture all that the artist sees in it at these three points therefore there is slip there is slip in the painter's observation of the subject treated there is slip in his attempt to express on canvas the beauty that has charmed his eye and there is slip in the perception of the spectator who afterwards gazes however sympathetically upon the painter's handiwork but i owe the artist an apology i have pressed him into my service violently and at random like jephthah's daughter he was the first person i met in the course of my seaside cogitation of my theme and i consequently seized upon him as my victim but he will not i hope object to my stating that anybody else would have served my purpose just as well it is true that nobody sees in the picture all that the painter puts there but then the same principle holds true of every worker supposing when i clambered over the boulders that projected into the surf supposing that i had found reclining in the shade on the other side not an artist but a statesman or a musician or an author or a preacher either would have provided me with an equally welcome victim and like jephthah i should have hurried him off to my altar for however carefully the statesman expounds his proposals to the house his scheme is never perfectly apprehended a certain amount of slip occurs in his own exposition of his ideas and a further element of slip characterizes the perception of his hearers and so the policy that reaches their intelligences is little more than a shadow of the splendid project that stirs his soul to such enthusiasm and as he listens to the damaging speeches of his opponents and reads the adverse criticisms of the newspapers he is tortured by the conviction that to a very large extent he has been misunderstood it is a case of slip it is the same with the musician the most fervent admirers of beethoven or wagner or chopin or handel do not hear in the oratorio all of the sublimities and profundities that swept the soul of the composer when he first committed his passion to paper only the author can perfectly appreciate a book his writings must of course stand or fall by the judgment of others it is his business not only to think great thoughts but skilfully to convey those thoughts to other minds his fine conceptions will not excuse his faulty expressions but for all that the fact remains that the most brilliant writer cannot so arrange his language as to make it a perfect vehicle for his thought something is lost in communicating his meaning to his manuscript and even the best of readers sometimes nods all that the author thought is not written and all that is written is not read and so at both stages slip 
takes place, and if, resting on the sands, I had chanced upon a minister, I am certain that I should have found him a victim exactly to my taste. For neither the artist, nor the statesman, nor the musician, nor the author is as much troubled by slip as the preacher. At the outset, the themes with which he deals are so sublime, so awful, so incomprehensible, that in the nature of the case, his conception of them must be very partial and very inadequate. Then, like the statesman and the author, he is under the humiliating necessity of employing language as the medium of his thought. And it is a very imperfect medium. As Tennyson says, Words, like nature, half reveal and half conceal the soul within. Words, even if he always selects the best words, mean different things to different people, and convey different notions at different times. And then again, he does not always select the best words. The man has never been born whose command of language amounted to absolute perfection, and, so far as it falls short of absolute perfection, he must perforce convey by his utterance something less, or something more, or something other than his meaning. In spite of all oaths and affidavits, no man ever yet told the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. It is not in the power of mortals to do it. Let two men, transparently honest and scrupulously careful, tell of an experience which they have shared, and the tales will differ materially in the telling. The impression conveyed by the one will diverge at several points from the impression created by the other. Language being what it is, and the human mind being what it is, it is impossible to speak without unconsciously understating, or overstating, or falsely stating the case. A liberal quantity of slip must therefore characterize the attempt of the preacher to express to his hearers his own very imperfect conceptions. And what of the congregation? Even if all his conceptions were immaculate, and all his language faultless, he must still allow for a certain amount of slip. Between his own lips and the perceptions of his hearers, there are innumerable avenues for the leakage of his energy. The acoustic properties of the building may not be perfect. The ears of the congregation may not be good. Sultry conditions or defective ventilation may induce drowsiness. And then, even at the best of times, thoughts are wayward things. Minds will wander. Even during the delivery of his most impassioned periods, the men will, in a flight of fancy, slip back to their offices. The mothers will be once more among the little ones at home. The young men and maidens will be dreaming romantically of each other. Everything is not heard, and even if heard, everything is not fully comprehended. Slip occurs at every point. The only remedy for this lies in sane and judicious repetition. It is the duty of the pulpit to say the same things over and over and over again. They must be clothed in different phraseology, and illumined by a fresh illustration, and approached by a new line of thought. But the things that are really worth saying must be said repeatedly. Allowances must be made for slip. I remember that, some years ago, an idea laid hold of me with more than ordinary force. It was burning in my bones. I felt it my duty to give utterance to it at every possible opportunity. I took it into my pulpit and stated it as effectively as I possibly could to my own people. A week or two later, I was invited to speak at a Methodist anniversary. I delivered my soul again on the same theme. But I noticed in the audience one gentleman, 
a prominent citizen and a man of considerable culture and devotion whom i distinctly remembered to have seen in my own congregation when i first broached the theme a week later i was under an engagement to address a large public meeting in the city hall i once more harked back to my old subject and to my horror as i was speaking i caught sight of the face of my former hearer i felt ashamed to be saying the same things to him a third time but i thought of the words jesus saith unto him the third time and proceeded to state my case as forcibly as i knew how at the close of the meeting as i was leaving the hall i found my friend waiting and not to rebuke me i was greatly impressed he said by what you were saying to-night and he went on to tell me of what he himself proposed to do in the matter he gave no hint of having heard me speak on the subject twice previously apparently i had then made no impression whether it was my fault or his is beside the question the point is that slip takes place and we must allow for it jesus saith unto him the third time and so must we it may be that one of these days we shall discover that the slip of life is less than we fancied we may find that the escaped energy though it did not propel the ship served some other useful purpose longfellow made some such discovery i shot an arrow into the air it fell to earth i know not where for so swiftly it flew the sight could not follow it in its flight i breathed a song into the air it fell to earth i know not where for who has sight so keen and strong that it can follow the flight of song long long afterwards in an oak i found the arrow still unbroke and the song from beginning to end i found again in the heart of a friend those who make such delightful discoveries may be left to enjoy their felicity undisturbed but since we are living in a world in which some arrows go astray and some songs fall flat it is as well to take no risks a wise man will allow for slip does the arrow appear to have missed its mark he will draw the bow again does the song seem to have reached the heart of nobody he will straightway tune his voice like browning's thrush to sing a second time end of section 18 end of section 3 chapter 1 recording by olivia